Um, Dan DeWitt is a longtime friend of the Dalrymples and I guess the entire DeWitt family. We have back here Isaiah and Micah who grew up uh, backyard to backyard with JJ and the Dalrymple family and so they're old friends. And uh, Dan just got a new position at Southwest Baptist University. Uh, I have his title here. He's executive director of the Center for Worldview Analysis and Cultural Engagement. So pretty light stuff, just uh, easy stuff, but our kind of stuff. And uh, it's great for Dan to come there. He and the boys are spending about a week down here, and they're in Dale and Sue's beach apartment. So they're having a, a big time, I think, riding the waves and walking on the beach and having some, some guy time. So during that trip, though, Dan was generous enough to come help us fill in for our senior pastor who's on sabbatical. So Dan will be preaching. And then, like, like I said, we also roped him into teaching this morning, too, which is going to be five reasons I believe the Bible. So we're looking forward to that. Thank you, Dan. And I'll hand it over to you. It's good to be with you, and uh, it's a hard life, you know, staying in a beach apartment for a week. Um, so Jeff was so kind when I reached out. We were trying to work things out, and I was supposed to be speaking somewhere else all week, and that ended up being canceled. And um, so I was free, and I'm like, hey, can we spend a few more days at the beach? So thank you to your church for the hospitality. And uh, the the reason for my talk, five reasons I believe the Bible um, in teaching college students, which I've done for a number of years now, at, in Christian context. So I used to teach at Southern Seminary. I was there for about 11 years, spent the last five of my 11 years there as dean of the undergraduate college. And then for the last six years, I've been teaching at Cedarville University. And what I found with warm-hearted Christ-follower college students um, is that often they love Jesus and they love the Bible and they want to serve the Lord, but they've not really thought about why they believe what they believe. So they, they can often tell you, um, not always, but often they can tell you what they believe with a lot of nuance and clarity. But if you were to ask them why they believe it, if you were to try and get underneath that what and get to the why, um, they're not always prepared to give you an answer for that. And of course, that's exactly what the Apostle Peter tells us we should be prepared to do. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's within you, Peter says. And so what I've started requiring for my students for the last six years um, when I teach theology is for them to write what I call why papers. And so I teach a theology one class. We cover the doctrine of scripture, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of creation, and I have them write a why paper for each doctrine that we cover. And regularly off students say from, you know, um, God-fearing families who grew up in church um, say, I've never really thought about why I believe it. And so I think this is a a helpful exercise for all of us. Um, I'm sharing it kind of from a personal perspective because I do this for my students. I ask them to write a paper, and then I've written my own, and this is kind of my why paper. And so if you think about the amount of trust that you place in the Bible, it's rather, you know, staggering when you really think about it. The person you married, if you're married, um, you probably, if you were a Christian at the time, chose that person based on values that they hold, that are informed by this book. Um, The way that you operate within your career is probably driven by, Lord willing, our goal should be, even though we're all imperfect, driven by values that are 
in this book. Um, the way you live your life with your neighbors and in community is, is really guided by this book. And it's a book that was written in languages you can't even read, most likely. Um, I've taken classes in these languages and I can't even read them. So I didn't take a lot of classes in Hebrew or Greek. Um, but it was written by multiple authors over 2,000 years ago when it was completed. So this ancient book written in languages that you can't read, you're placing all of your trust in it. You're, and not only for your work and your spouse and your life mission and for your eternity, you're actually, you're banking on what this book says about what will happen the moment after you die. So the amount of weight you put in this book is, 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 is massive, right? And so to, to be, be prepared to say why you're doing that um, should be something every Christian has thought about, and I'm sure you have. And so what I'm going to share today is not going to be novel um, or unique or overly profound. So just spoiler alert, you probably won't be that impressed. But I hope that it helps you just kind of um, clarify the way you might talk about it. And at least this is the way that I try to talk about, about it when given the opportunity. Hello, Dalrymple family. Nothing better than being called out when you're... You get a pass, though. You've been at camp all week. Jeff Dalrymple is probably the most Christ-like servant I know, just a humble guy. So that's what you get for walking in late. <laughs> All right, so the, the first reason I believe the Bible, when I share this um, in, in different settings, I always have people act, um, well, I, I don't want to say they act this way, but my, my assumption is um, that they're not very impressed with this first point, and that's okay. Um, but I believe the Bible because I'm a Christian. That doesn't sound like a very compelling answer, but I hope it's an honest one. And so I had a um, spiritual experience at the age of 15 that I would now describe having some theological vocabulary as conversion. Um, that conversion experience when I became a Christian radically changed my life, and I can't separate out belief in God, belief in Jesus, and belief in Scripture into nice, tidy categories. And so I believe the Bible because I'm a Christian. And so what I like to tell students is they often will feel like, there's a reason for the elephant, by the way. Um, I like to tell them that they often will operate as though religious people, um, Christians, that we somehow are unique in comparison to the way that other people see the world. We have a faith commitment, and our atheist neighbors and friends, they, they have science. So they get science, and we get an ancient book written thousands of years ago in other languages that we can't even read. And so when it seems like the way we make sense of the world, it feels like we have actually the, the weaker position. And I like to tell them, actually, that's not the case. Every person has a faith commitment that determines what they believe about the world, and they have to accept it by faith. So I've got the elephant on the screen. This comes from one of my favorite Christian authors who just passed away a couple years ago, James Sire. James Sire was a Christian philosopher, and in his book, Naming the Elephant, um, he tells the story of a boy who comes home from elementary school, and he is upset. He's troubled by something his teacher told him, and it had nothing to do with evolution or something like that or sexual identity or something like that. It had everything to do with the fact that his teacher told him that the earth is not sitting on top of anything. And that bothered him because all of his lived experience, things sit on top of other things that, you know, because of gravity, um, all of his experience 
was that if you drop something, it falls. If you jump off of a tree, you're going to fall. Everything sits on top of something. And his teacher told him the earth is not sitting on anything. It's actually suspended in the air. And that blew all of his category. So he came home very troubled and convinced that his teacher was lying to him. So his dad did what all dads do when they want to have fun with their children. He, he lied to him. <laughs> And um, all, all of us have done that, and all of us have been lied to. Um, example, Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, um, the Tooth Fairy. Like, we fell for that at some point. Uh, what a creepy idea that there's someone coming to take our teeth and give us a quarter. Um, but nonetheless, so his dad's having fun with him, and he says, the earth is sitting on top of something. And this little boy is just thrilled. You know, my teacher's wrong. I'm right. Um, and he says, well, what's it sitting on? And his dad said, well, everybody knows that it's on top of a turtle. Um, The earth is on the back of a turtle. That's how it gets around the sun, which the boy didn't pick up on that the sun in this analogy is not sitting on anything, but nonetheless. Um, So the boy's excited. He runs out of the room, validated, vindicated, and then he turns around and comes back a few minutes later, and he says, "But, but dad, what's the turtle on? And the dad says, well, it's on the back of a camel. And the boy runs out, and you know, not only is his teacher wrong, but this is like a really remarkable reality is, is even cooler than we ever thought it could be. It's like a trip to the zoo. And uh, he, he comes back even quicker this time, and is, he says, Dad, what's the camel on? And he said, well, the camel is on the back of an elephant. He thought the largest animal he could think of. And so the boy runs out, and this just got even cooler, and then he comes right back, and he says, Dad, what is the elephant on? To which his father responded, son, it is just elephant all the way down. <laughs> and you could tell he didn't answer the question because it, was go- it would go on forever. And if you've had small kids, you know how that goes. Um, usually it's not, the, it's not the, the kid who will give up first and the why game. And th- what that illustrates is that every person, to use that analogy, has an elephant. For every person, there's something that you accept by faith that if you really push them hard enough, um, they'll just have to admit, I accept this as a brute fact, and it's just elephant all the way down. Here's one example. Some of you um, will remember famously Carl Sagan said 30 plus years ago um, in his book and then in the documentary based on his book, Cosmos, the cosmos, the universe, is all there is or ever was or ever will be. Now, that sounds really sophisticated. That's the kind of thing that smart people actually believe. Those are scientific values, and us religious people just have a book that was written in other languages thousands of years ago. However, if you evaluate those claims, you would see that they're not scientific claims. They're religious claims that can't be proven scientifically. You can't prove that the cosmos is all that is. You can't. In fact, now a leading theory is that there's a multiverse at least for Marvel movies, that becomes a convenient way to, you know, spin off as many, you know, offshoot stories. But that's actually a theory that's given a lot of weight by um, secular um, physicists and people who really are looking for something often other than God to, to make sense of the world we live in. And so the, the predominant view today is not that the cosmos is all that is. That's a, that's a religious claim. That's a faith commitment. That's an elephant um, for Carl Sagan. Um, You can't prove that the cosmos is all that ever was. In fact, leading theoretical physicist Lawrence Krauss, who's an atheist, argues that before the Big Bang, that there was some kind of pre-existent matter and energy that's always been there. How did it get there? I don't know, he says. 
Where do the intelligible laws come that govern this, this, what he calls the nothing? He wrote a book called A Universe from Nothing. And when you really dig into it, he doesn't mean nothing. He means this pre-existent matter and energy that existed before the Big Bang. And so he, it's, it's bait and switch. Here's a universe from nothing. I'll tell you how it all came from nothing. And you dig into it, and he doesn't mean nothing. He means something. And it's governed by intelligible laws, like gravity, for example, that he says in a footnote, we don't know where they came from either. So th- these kind of things show that everyone has an elephant. And for the Christian, we have a belief that God exists and that he's revealed himself. And I won't go through this one for time's sake, but this is another example. Richard Lewinton, an often cited article, um, he's actually doing a book review of a Carl Sagan book, but he talks about the way he does his science. And he says, the way we do our science um, It rules out all supernatural causes. Why? And you can see the underlying part there. Because we have a prior commitment. We have a commitment to materialism. And by that, he doesn't mean like shopping um, or consumerism or, you know, to quote the Madonna song, um, I am a material girl living in a material world. He means philosophical materialism, i.e. atheism. We have a commitment to atheism and it governs the way we do our science. Well, atheism is itself, I would argue, a faith commitment because it can't be proven scientifically. He goes on to say, moreover, our atheism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. We won't even consider it. Even more explicitly here, um, Crispin Sartwell, who's an atheistic philosopher, he teaches philosophy at a university in Arizona, said just about five or six years ago in an article at The Atlantic, that his atheism is a faith commitment. He just admitted it. And the title of the article is Irrational Atheism. And he is an atheist, and he says that at bottom, atheism is itself not a rational conclusion to scientific or even, you know, rational evidence, but rather it's a commitment one must accept by faith. So he says atheism pictures the universe as a natural system. It's not guided by intelligent design. It's not traversed by spirits. A universe that can be explained by science because it consists of material objects operating according to physical laws. It's a pretty good summary of just a a kind of a secular view of the world. Now, Christians wouldn't deny the fact that it's governed by um, physical laws, that it could be studied through science. We appreciate that, and throughout the history of science, it's been peppered with amazing Christian thinkers, and it itself grew out of a Christian view of the world. But that's a, another, another point. Christmas Hartwell says, this is the way we see the world. He goes on to say, ironically, this is similar to the totalizing worldview of religion. Neither can be shown to be true or false by science or indeed by any rational technique. Whether theistic or atheistic, they are all matters of faith. Again, he's an atheist himself. Stances taken up by tiny creatures in an infinitely rich environment. I have taken a leap of atheist faith. That's breathtaking in how honest he's being. It made a lot of his atheist colleagues rather angry. Richard Dawkins came out and said, this can't be right. You know, we just have to ignore it. Ignore it. Um, He goes on to say, the idea of the atheist comes to her view of the world through rationality and argumentation, while the believer relies on arbitrary emotional commitments is false. So I like to share this with my students just to say the fact that you have a faith commitment does not put you in a position of weakness. 
Um, every person has a certain faith commitment that is there. If you were playing chess, which I don't play, I've never learned, and my son Isaiah is, wants to play me all the time because he knows he would beat me because I don't even know the rules. But I do know you have to make a first move in chess, like in checkers, I suppose, or any other game. And every first move when it comes to making sense of the world is a faith commitment. It's one's elephant. Now, this argument actually is found in the Bible, something similar to it. Paul tells Timothy to continue in what he's believed about the word, and he gives him two arguments, a personal one and then a theological one. So Paul writes to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing, here's the first argument, from whom you learned it. Um, He tells Timothy, you have a godly grandmother and a godly mother. So Timothy, if asked, why do you believe the Bible may have responded at this point, I believe it because my grandma told me to believe it. And Paul's saying, that's okay. Um, So that's the personal argument. Then he gives him a theological argument. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. For Timothy, his argument didn't begin with a bunch of evidence or philosophical arguments. It began with, I know my mom. I know my grandma. And I trust them. And I've seen their lives. The second reason I believe the Bible is because it's powerful. So first, I believe it because I'm a Christian. My belief in God, my belief in Jesus, my belief in the scriptures are, are a package deal. And I, I would rather just lead with that concession than try and act as though I became a Christian after I heard Josh McDowell present a bunch of statistics, right? I, now, I appreciate all the statistics, and I'm going to share some with you myself in a little bit. Uh, but for, the, for most of us, that's not how we came into the faith. We heard the gospel preached by someone who believed the Bible and taught it, or someone who shared it with us, and God powerfully worked in our hearts, and it's okay just to be honest and admit that. And again, to be fair, every way of making sense of the world begins with some kind of faith commitment. I'm sure you're probably familiar with her story. She was a tenured literature professor at Syracuse University, um, very active in the LGBTQ community, nationally known as being a part of um, LGBTQ+, if I'm saying it all in the right order, um, campaigns. And um, she had a long time monogamous, committed relationship with a lesbian partner. And at her university, at Syracuse University, um, as a tenured literature professor, she often was able to kind of pick her research interests. As an atheist, she had an interesting um, desire to study the Bible. And so she had it approved for her to do a research project on the influence of the Bible. And to begin her research, she just simply began by reading um, through the Bible, um, large portions of the Bible in in several hour um, sitting periods. So unlike us, where we, you know, often open it for a word from God, and 15 minutes later, we're, you know, on our way out to work, this was Rosaria's job, so she would sit for hours a day and just read through the scriptures. And she recounts in her book, which is beautifully written, she's a tenured literature professor at Syracuse, so as you would imagine, it's beautifully written. Um, The title of the book is The Secret Confessions of an Unlikely Convert. And Rosaria talks about how um, her and her partner would often have members of the LGBT community in their home because so many of them were, are, um, 
rejected by their families and their faith communities, and they're lonely, and they're looking for a place of belonging. And so they found that belonging together. And in, in kind of a beautiful picture of human solidarity, they would gather together regularly for meals. Um, and on one occasion, Rosaria, in the middle of this Bible reading project, um, have went back into the kitchen to get some more food to bring out and serve. And she describes how her friend, who's a transgender woman, followed her back into the kitchen. Rosaria said she put her hand out to open the refrigerator door, and her friend placed a very large hand, as Rosaria describes it, um, on hers and stopped her. And her friend said to Rosaria, Rosaria, I'm worried about you. And Rosaria said, um, I've been reading the Bible. And her friend responded, I know. And Rosaria said, what if it's true? And her friend responded, Rosaria, it's all true. And Rosaria tells in her her book how her friend, before coming out as a transgender woman, um, was a a pastor. And her friend brought um, the collection of books, once used to prepare sermons, for Rosaria to supplement her Bible reading with commentaries. When Rosaria got to the New Testament and was studying Romans, she pulled out the commentary on Romans from her friend, um, and the commentary was written by John Calvin. And in reading through John Calvin's commentary on Romans 1 on chapter 1, which is probably the most um, specific and clear teaching against um, homosexual practice in the New Testament, Rosaria said written in the, in the side note was, her friend had written as a pastor, be careful, this is where you'll fall. And can you imagine a pastor sitting in his office struggling with dysphoria like that? I mean, we should, we should be very empathetic, not um, celebrating or agreeing with, but empathetic when someone describes to you their inner mental state is best described by the word dysphoria, gender dysphoria. If euphoria is an amazing feeling, it must be, imagine how awful and, and gut-wrenching that experience must have been for this pastor. Um, not to affirm it or celebrate it, but we should at least, as humans, recognize if someone tells you their mental state is dysphoric, um, we should say, th- this is a point where we need friendship, and um, perhaps before we give them a sermon, right? So Rosaria is reading the Bible. Her friend has made these comments to her. And then she had a Presbyterian pastor and wife who reached out to her and began inviting her into their home um, for meals. It was two years before that pastor and his wife would even invite Rosaria to church um, and even longer before they would share the gospel with her. They just wanted to build friendship. Rosaria describes how she would drive her pickup truck to a parking lot across the street from the church on Sunday mornings and just watch people go in. Long before she ever walked into the church herself, she would sit there in her pickup truck and watch people. She had a student who attempted suicide and um, in the hospital trying to care for this student, um, she was visited by her friends from the LGBT community and then also by this church that she had started visiting. And she noticed a profound difference in the way they approached significant issues like end of life. Um, And through reading the Bible, through a friendship with this couple, and then through this experience of the student, the Lord uh, opened her eyes and she became a Christian. Rosaria today is a minister's wife and is known internationally for her commitment to Jesus and her ability to defend biblical values in a winsome way. 
I believe the Bible because I've seen its power, and you believe the Bible because you've seen its power as well. This, too, is a biblical argument. The author of Hebrews, whomever that is, I wish we knew so we wouldn't always have to say the author of Hebrews. Um, I'm going with Barnabas. I just think that would be kind of cool for Barnabas to, to get a place in the Bible. I, it, this isn't the point, but I actually think it could be a sermon by Paul that's been edited by one of his close colleagues. So the, the rhetorical style of Hebrews is, is, seems to be like a sermon, so that's just my theory. But this author of Hebrews writes, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, this is a kind of a creepy verse, if you really think about it. Because that means that the Bible, as you read it, is able to discern your thoughts and your heart's intentions. Have you ever thought about that, what that means? Have you experienced that? Where you're reading scripture and all of a sudden something becomes very clear, sometimes convicting, you know, I've had the wrong heart motive in this. Um, I've been thinking this and it's wrong. As you read the Bible, the Bible's reading you. I believe the Bible because it's powerful. Of course, Isaiah the prophet said, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That's why the apostle Paul writes, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Because it's so powerful, Paul says, we don't mess with it. You're not God's editor right? Um, God didn't give you a rough draft. This isn't a rough draft. It's an English translation of those ancient languages written thousands of years ago, but nonetheless, it's the word of God, and it's not a rough draft. God's not waiting for your, your edits. <laughs> you know, he's not waiting for you to, um, he's not looking at track changes in a word document. Um, you're not an editor, you're more like a publicist. God's already went to print, right? And so Paul says, we don't mess with it, but rather through a simple and open statement of the truth. What an easy job we have as Christians. We don't have to be clever or overly educated or overly wise. It's just a simple statement of what God has said. Third reason I believe the Bible, because it just makes sense of the world. The Bible has a way of making sense of the world um, in a way that no other way of, of seeing the world can. I've taught worldview analysis for a number of years. There's a book, for any of you who are interested, I think the, the book I go back to over and over again for worldview analysis, which is comparing ways people see the world, it's by James Sire, whom I mentioned earlier, and it's called The Universe Next Door. And he gives you eight questions to ask of any worldview to try and make sense of it, and then he goes through eight different worldviews and asks those eight questions of those various worldviews. But what I've found, and what I try to illustrate for students, is that the Bible offers a compelling and powerful explanation of the human experience. And it's powerful because it resonates with what it feels like to be alive in the world today, a world that is filled with both beauty and horror. The Bible has a way of making sense of it in a way that's superior to any secular alternative or religious alternative. Take, for example, there's a, a philosophy professor at Duke University. His name is Alex Rosenberg, and he published a book probably eight or nine years ago called The Atheist Guide to Reality, and the subtitle of the book is Living Life Without Illusions, and he begins with the premise that science is the only way to make sense of the world that's based on a commitment that the, the universe only exists uh, material things. Again, materialism. 
And as we pointed out, you can't prove that through science. So his premise is a faith commitment, right? And then his, the thesis of the book is this. He says, physics fixes the facts. Physics fixes the facts. And what he means by that is science is how we know stuff. And if science can't explain it, um, either may, maybe at some point it will be able to explain it, or if there's no compelling scientific explanation, it's merely an illusion. Now, one of the problems with that statement is, or perhaps the most significant problem with it, is that it's wrong. <laughs> and one of the reasons we could tell that it's wrong is it can't live up to its own standard. So if physics, are you guys tracking with me? I know I'm, I get into teachy professor mode, so I don't want to be too teachy. Um, the statement, physics fixes the facts, is not a statement that he got from physics. He didn't, he didn't discover it through a telescope or under a microscope. It's, that's not a scientific value. So he's saying, another way that's been said before, Bertrand Russell, a, a British um, atheistic philosopher, said years ago, what science cannot teach us, mankind cannot know. That sounds sophisticated. Did he learn that statement through science? No. Then can we know it? Are you tracking with me? If physics fixes the facts, if that statement itself is not derived from physics, is it a fact? It's a faith commitment that governs the way he sees everything. It's an elephant. And, but Alex Rosenberg goes on to, to go through all these human values and ask the question, can physics make sense of this? And, and he'll conclude at the end of each chapter when he looks at these values, if science can't make sense of it, then it's an illusion. And at the end of the book, he concludes that one, we're not persons because science can't show personhood. He says that you are the sum total of your parts. You're a billion chemical reactions in your brain over your lifetime, and not one of them is you. There's no you. You are not persons. And interestingly, in, in neuroscience, that's not an uncommon belief. The idea that personhood is somehow an evolutionary adaptation to make us want to survive. If we think we're persons, then we might want to live more than if we recognize we're impersonal um, biochemical reactors or something like that. So we're not persons. He goes on to say, not only are you not persons, you have no will. You have no ability to make decisions. You don't tell your brain what to do. It tells you what to do. And so he says the idea that you make meaningful decisions is an evolutionary adaptation to make you want to survive because you feel like you have some sense of control. But really, you have no control. You have zero control in life because there's no, there's no immaterial part of you that can somehow tell the material part of you what to do, right? And then another, just to point out one more, he says the idea of moral distinctions to call one thing good and another thing evil that moral distinctions are themselves an illusion because science can't tell us what is good and what is evil. Now, of course, Christians believe that the whole thing started with a God who does tell us what is good and what is evil. But nonetheless, imagine this scenario. A Boy Scout, back when there were Boy Scouts, right? A Boy Scout walks a, an elderly person across the street. And we look at that and we think, that's a good act. And then he gets to the other side of the street and he takes her cane and he beats her to death and steals her purse. It's a morbid thought on a Sunday morning. We would look at that and say, that's a very evil thing. Alex Rosenberg looks at that and says, the distinction between one acting as good and one act as evil is an illusion. Do you want to live in that world? He concludes the book by saying that we should all be nihilist. 
Nihilism is the philosophy that there's no objective meaning or purpose in the world. Um, I think nihilism is, is outside of Christianity is the most um, comprehensive and consistent way of seeing the world. If there is no God, I think nihilism is the logical conclusion that there's no objective meaning or purpose, which means if we're going to have any values, we have to create it for ourselves, which means they're not objective, they're not transcendent, they're subjective based in the person. However, he says we all should be nihilists, but we should be nice nihilists. To which I respond, why? Why? And, uh, and he, he goes on, it would seem the, the point of his book is this, to affirm the virtue of science so that thinking people will make a decision to adopt a similar worldview. But these are all values that Alex Rosenberg denies in his book. Yet his project seems to be aimed at getting people to make a decision to affirm the virtue of an atheistic view of the world. I think C.S. Lewis said it best to summarize this point. He said at the end of an essay, the title of the essay is, is Theology Poetry? And Lewis's answer to that question was, well, if it is poetry, it's not very good poetry. <laughs> um, and his point wasn't that, that the Bible is somehow poor literature. That wasn't, his point was it's more than poetry. It contains poetry, but it's, it's much more than that. At the end of that essay, he gives this powerful statement. I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but by it, I see everything else. Now, I woke up this morning before my alarm clock um, because the, the sun was illuminating the, the room I was sleeping in. In the middle of the night, I, I wouldn't be able to see that I had, you know, left a couple items on the floor I would trip over them in the middle of the night. I wouldn't be able to see them. In the morning, I could see them, not because I had turned the lights on, but because the, the light of the sun was illuminating the room. Lewis said that his belief in Christianity is similar to this. He could look at Christianity. He could look at the historical claims that God took on human flesh, that God, the word, became flesh. He could look at those things and evaluate them, or he could look at the human experience in light of Christianity and ask the question, does, the, does Christianity illuminate what it feels like to be beauty and our aversion to things that are morally repugnant, our aversion to Adam Lanza who walked into an elementary school several years ago, and sadly this has been repeated in recent history, and began shooting elementary school children at point blank range. We look at that and say that's evil, and the Bible gives us categories for real evil and for real virtue and nobility and good. The Bible makes sense of the world. Furthermore, if it's true, as I believe it is, it does so much more than give us a category for evil. It gives us a solution in the cross of Christ, in the cross of Christ. So I believe the Bible because it makes sense of the world. Now, my next point, I believe the Bible because there's lots of evidence. I'll sometimes have students, you know, kind of have a look of, a, of relieved, uh, a look of relief um, when I get to this point because that's what they're waiting for. But I want to lead into it by saying you don't have to lead with the evidence. That's probably not how most of you became a Christian. Um, but there is a lot of evidence. And I'll see what I could get to in the next uh, 15 minutes. One historian who um, teaches at um, Western Michigan University points out ancient historian Paul Mayer of Western Michigan University states many things in the ancient world many things in the ancient world are based on one single on one source a single source 
Um, and I'll give you one example, but there are a lot of things we believe happened at some point, and we only have one source for it. Consider the um, Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Swerve. Beautifully written, fascinating, really interesting, but it's really about how a manuscript that was discovered um, ushered in the modern era. There's a poem written by um, an atheistic poet who lived before the time of Jesus, and it was written down later, and we, this guy discovered um, a manuscript of it over a thousand years old. And what Stephen Greenblatt in his book argues is that single manuscript was enough to usher in the modern era. It tells the story of Poggio Bracciolini, who discovered in 1417, he was kind of like a National treasure, if you've seen that movie, like a, a treasure hunter, he was, that's, Poggio was kind of that way. He liked to go in and into used bookstores and look for treasures. I, I do that still today. Any used book fans who, like, I love to go into a, a good used bookstore and find some amazing treasure. And uh, that's what he did. And he discovered a copy of Lucretius's poem on the nature of things. Lucretius was a poet who died about 50 years before Jesus was born. Poggio sent his discovery to his friend, Niccolo de Nicolai. And his friend, his buddy who borrowed his book, did what all good friends do when they borrow your book. He lost it. So this ancient manuscript was lost. But before he lost it, he made a copy of his own. Now, Niccolo was the inventor of the Italic script. He had beautiful penmanship. So he wrote a copy of this manuscript, lost the manuscript, and that copy of a manuscript is what Stephen Greenblatt argues ushered in the modern era. Now, I can't spend a whole lot of time on that book. I would commend it to you if you're at all interested in it. And I would encourage you to read it in light of all the evidence that we have for the reliable transmission of the New Testament. But this single copy of a lost poem revived and undergirded an entire school of philosophical thought and helped to usher in modernity. One single manuscript, and there was a thousand-year gap between that manuscript that was discovered and when it was originally written. A thousand years of no copies. How does the Bible compare? I've got a copy of this painting above my desk at home. Um, it's a Rembrandt painting. I wish it, I had the original. <laughs> but it's a rather cheap copy. But nonetheless, there are three people in this painting. Can you spot them all? Perhaps even four, because Rembrandt often would paint himself into, you know, faces. So this could be Rembrandt's face. But this right here is Aristotle, the famed student of Plato, who was the famed student of Socrates. And Aristotle is leaning on the bust of Homer, who's thought to be a blind poet. He's got this gold chain that's hanging around off of his shoulder, and you can't see it here, but I believe it's right here. There it is. Do you see where the arrow's pointing? There's no arrow. Oh, there's no arrow. I could see it. So there, there's a locket that's hanging on it. If you were to look at it in high resolution, you'd see that there's a portrait on the locket, and it's intended to be... Um, Aristotle's most famous student. Anyone know who that is? Alexander the Great. And so um, Alexander the Great, it's, the gold chain is depicting a part of the spoils that um, he brought back to his mentor. Now, if you were to look at those three sources, starting with Alexander, I guess I have it on the screen there. Um, after Alexander's death, there are a number of histories that were written about him, but all of them are lost. All we have are references and later works. The, probably the best work 
um, of, of Alexander's military conquests was written by Lucius Flavius Arrhenius, and it was written 400 years after the events he was describing. 400 years later. And yet, nonetheless, um, I'm sure you've learned of Alexander the Great um, in, in high school, if not in college. Um, when it comes to Aristotle... Aristotle, the oldest copy we have of a work from Aristotle, it was made in the mid-9th century. It's over 1,200 years after what Aristotle would have taught was originally written. There's a 1,200-year gap. When it comes to Homer, to complete the circle with that painting, Homer actually has the best evidence for his writing than anything in antiquity with the exception of the Bible. And I'll, I'll give you a chart here in a second. In comparing Homer to the Bible, what you're going to see is that we have an embarrassment of riches, to quote one um, Bible manuscript scholar. When it comes to the ancient manuscript evidence for the New Testament, we have around 5,500 copies in Greek. Now, we have probably about 2,000, some people estimate, as high as 3,000 copies of Homer. When it comes to the New Testament in Greek, we have 5,500 copies. That, <laughs> there's more, <laughs> um, the, the New Testament was translated very early into other languages. And so we have, in terms of ancient copies, not only Greek copies, but we have copies in other languages. We have over 15,000 copies, ancient copies, of the New Testament in other languages. Our oldest fragment of the New Testament is P52. It's a little fragment from John's Gospel. It's about the size of a business card. And it, was, it dates to within 50 years of when John originally wrote the gospel. The earliest copy we have of Homer's work, um, and again, Homer's is the, the most evidence your gap, even with Homer. When it comes to the New Testament, we could get back to um, very, very early copies. Anyone wanting to look into this should study Princeton University Scholar's book, Bruce Metzger's book, The Early Versions of the New Testament, and it is fascinating. He documents all the ways the New Testament was translated early on. We have well over 20,000 ancient copies, as I pointed out, in different languages. Um, you can compare that with a couple thousand. I have a thousand there that's probably lower than what it is. To put it visually, it looks about like this. Comparing the Bible to Homer, 20,000 ancient copies to 1,000 or 2,000. There's difference of opinion on how to, to, to number them. <laughs> So we have about a 500-year gap um, between when we get a, a copy of Homer. What was happening? I, I call it the Homer gap to ask the question, what was happening in the first 500 years of the New Testament? If it takes us 500 years to get a copy of Homer, what was going on in the Homer gap? I hope that makes sense with the New Testament. The New Testament was completed towards the end of the first century. In AD 180, we have, um, we have evidence that there was a Latin translation already of the New Testament. There were Christians in northern Africa on trial. The, um, the trial was recorded in Latin, and they had the writings of the Apostle Paul. Um, Bruce Metzger says if they had Paul's writings, they probably had the Gospels in Latin as well. By the time you get to the fourth century, still within that period, that gap, 
Augustine complained that everyone who had a copy of the Greek New Testament and knew Latin just had to make a Latin translation. He was complaining that there were too many Latin copies. Jerome, when he made the Latin Vulgate, if you've heard of that Latin translation, complained that there were so many stinking Latin translations. He said that there were more Latin copies of the New Testament than there were Greek manuscripts. So that's just Latin. What about other languages? Well, we have about five or six versions in Syriac, different versions in Syriac within the first six centuries of the church. In AD 360, this is a fascinating story. There was a guy named Ulfius who wanted to reach the uh, Gothic people. The problem was they didn't have a written language. So the heart of Christianity has always been missiological or missions oriented, and it's always been deeply concerned with getting the Bible in people's languages. So what Ulfius did is he created an alphabet for them. And he used that alphabet to give them the first piece of writing in their language, which was a Gothic translation of the New Testament. Bruce Metzger goes through every single language and is, is indeed impressive. Again, to give you a visual chart, if you look at the red circles, the dark red circle represents the, the copies of the New Testament in Greek. The, uh, the wider red circle um, that's larger are all those other languages. So we have nearly 20,000 ancient copies in Greek compared to other sources. And you can see Homer, um, the largest yellow circle there. There's a lot of evidence for the New Testament. I didn't come into the Christian faith because of the evidence, but I will tell you this. Um, I am really encouraged by the evidence. The Christian need not be intimidated or afraid of people who would want to know the evidential basis for why we believe the Bible. It is indeed very, very impressive. And finally, in conclusion, I believe the Bible because Jesus rose from the dead. In general, as a you know, general operating principle, you should take the words of anyone who rises from the dead um, very seriously. <laughs> and if Jesus truly rose from the dead, then it validates his claim to be God. It validates his claim to be the only way to God. And it validates everything that he taught. Jesus loved the Old Testament. In fact, some scholars will estimate that Jesus quoted either in word or in principle from every book of the Old Testament. He loved the Old Testament. So much so that he said he didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Not only did Jesus love the Old Testament, Jesus is the one who commissioned the writing of the New Testament. Here's how he commissioned it. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations and teach them everything that I've taught you. And they promised them the Holy Spirit would be in them to guide them into remembrance of what Jesus had taught them. What is that but the commissioning of the writing of the New Testament? I would argue that the New Testament authors um, show us that this is how they understand what's going on. The Holy Spirit is moving them along to record what Jesus has taught them and Jesus' instruction for the church. So in short, Jesus' resurrection validates the book he loved and the book he commissioned. If Jesus rose from the dead, you should take the Old Testament seriously because Jesus loved it. You should take the New Testament seriously because Jesus inspired it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, For I delivered to you as of first importance. By the way, this is the oldest creed in the history of the Christian church. Paul often um, 
includes quotations from other sources in his writings. And this is an example. This is thought to be the oldest creed in the Christian church, and I could give you a long list of atheist scholars who say this creed had to be developed at the latest three years after the resurrection. There's a long list of secular scholars who recognize this creed goes back almost all the way to Easter, the first Easter Sunday. Gerb Ludemann, who's an a internationally known atheist um, New Testament scholar, and there are such things, um, says that this creed had to be developed within the first three years. Robert Funk, who's the founder of the Jesus Seminar, which is not a youth camp experience, um, it's a very secular movement to basically take all the miracle claims out of Scripture. Robert Funk, who's an atheist, says this creed had to be developed within at least, th- at, at the latest, three years um, after the resurrection. Paul quotes it. He says, I delivered to you what I received. This is what Paul was taught after he first became a Christian. These are the words that were on the lips of the first disciples after the first Easter Sunday. Here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the, to the scriptures. They appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. While giving you the oldest creed, I'll end with the oldest portrait of Jesus, mocking him. This is graffiti from the second century, found outside of Rome in what's thought to be a military encampment for young soldiers. Written here in, um, well, if you could read that, the English translation of what's written there is Alex Amenos. I believe it's written originally in I, I'm not even going to claim it because there may be someone who knows the languages far better than I do, and I'll make a fool of myself. There, there are two inscriptions. One is in Greek and one is in Latin. The first inscription is translated, Alex Amenos worships his God. It's a depiction thought to be of Jesus and this young Roman soldier worshiping his God, making fun of Jesus by putting the head of a donkey on this body hanging from a cross. Um, in, in an adjacent room, they found the, the text written in another language in a different handwriting that says, Alex Amenos is faithful. What a juxtaposition in one room making fun of Alex Amenos for worshiping a God who died on a cross, and in the other room, either Alex Amenos himself writing just to encourage himself, or perhaps someone writing of Alex Amenos, he's faithful. What could turn this symbol of vulgarity so vulgar that there, we have an ancient writing where a prostitute was said to, have, um, said to a client who didn't pay, go crucify yourself. It was a vulgar symbol used to make fun of and ridicule those who worshiped a God who died on a cross. What could turn this symbol of vulgarity into a universal symbol of hope? I would argue that it's best explained by a God who not only died on a cross, but walked out of a borrowed garden tomb on Easter Sunday. I believe the Bible because Jesus rose from the dead. And I'm out of time, so I'll pray. And uh, I know we have a worship. We'll begin soon. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that today we could honor you in the way we interact with each other. We're so thankful for the opportunity to gather with other Christians. And I pray that our hearts could be warmed and encouraged and united with our brothers and sisters that we gather with today. I thank you for Sunrise Community Church. I pray that you would continue to bless this church. I pray for their pastor as he's on sabbatical that you would give him rest 
and that he would come back with an, an even greater sense of, of calling and come back refreshed and encouraged. Lord, I pray that you would take whatever I've shared today that is helpful, and I pray, Lord, that it could be remembered, anything that I've shared that is unhelpful. Um, I pray that it could be forgotten, and Lord, I pray that we could just focus on Jesus today. I pray as I preach the word later um, this hour, Lord, that you would be glorified in it. That's our desire. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.